This morning's reading is from 2 Corinthians. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that uh, as we think about it now, Lord, that you'll speak to our hearts. You know what each one of us needs to hear today. Blessed time. Bless this time, Lord, and use it powerfully for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when Nikki and I were living in D.C., our, uh, our community group leader at that time was, on, was uh, a board member of an organization called the C.S. Lewis Institute, and we learned about that organization there. And they say, we develop wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ who will articulate, defend, share, and live their faith in personal and public life. But you can imagine, centered in D.C., they felt this was really critical. You know, to have people who are the believers who are in the midst of power, you know, places of influence in D.C., really learning how to, what they believed and how to live it out in private and public life. The uh, president of that organization, who we uh, just knew briefly or heard, was a guy by the name of uh, Thomas Terrance, or Trance. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce his last name. And, uh, and I have to admit, when I met him, I just figured he was, you know, one of these, you know, real Christian people. And, uh, you know, I say that just, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm from my background, so I was like, oh, these people kind of, they seem very respectable, unlike my background. And uh, so I was always saying, kind of thing, yeah, which is great, you know, they feel like they're, they're with it, they, you know, want to be strong in ministry and do things. But I realized, I didn't realize how much different his life was actually from mine until just, uh, actually just recently published was his biography called um, Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love, How a Violent Klansman Became a Champion of Racial Reconciliation. And what I learned about him, it's funny when you know somebody, have no idea, is actually growing up as a teenager in Mississippi uh, during the 60s, he ended up getting involved in the Ku Klux Klan, and particularly with something that was called the, um, uh, the White Knights, which were considered by the FBI to be the, um, the worst domestic terrorist group at the time a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and actually, uh, I actually managed to search a story of the New York Times from that time, and it uh, was this. So Thomas Terrance was caught in a police trap after placing a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi, in 1968. Terrance, a 23-year-old mobile Alabama, man, mobile Alabama man who had been closely associated with the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, was arrested on June 30, 1968, while attempting to place... 29 sticks of dynamite and a timing device at the home of Meyer Davidson. In a gun battle that ensued, he was wounded and his woman companion was killed and he was convicted in November 1968 and sentenced to 30 years in the state penitentiary. 
He um, subsequently also escaped from prison, involved in another gun battle that also killed the person who escaped with him, and then was placed in solitary confinement. And they say it was like a six-by-nine little cell where he couldn't interact with anyone. But it was actually in that cell that he began to think, began to search, as he said, began to encounter God, began to read the scriptures. And a radical change of his life happened. He gave his life to Jesus. And his life changed so radically in that cell that the, it's pretty amazing. The very people who advocated to put him away began to advocate for his release. And after eight years, he was actually released from jail, went to um, college, seminary, became a pastor of a multiracial group. He started working towards racial reconciliation uh, in our country and eventually became the president of the C.S. Lewis Society. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, what is it? That, that's what the gospel is. Somebody's life being radically changed. And not just changed one off, right? It was changing, right? It took this massive turn, and then it can, can, the change kept happening and happening and happening to where you have a person here, and you can't even imagine that this person is that person. You think of Roz's story. What a change that's happened to her, and continue little changing that happens. When I think about our vision as a church, this is what our vision is, right? We are a vibrant community being changed by Jesus. <clears throat> you know, um, we're kind of actually coming at this to a point in our sort of, I call our your cycle of vision, which is critical, or cycle as a church. I mean, back in March last year, a you know, year and a half ago, I think all, you know, the basic thing is we were just trying to survive, right? How do we have church? Then when I look at this time last year, we were just trying to um, stabilize somehow. You know, stabilize what's going on. I remember I was listening, talking to Kelly, you know, our pastor of families, and she was saying, yeah, when you interviewed me last year at this time, it was in Staples. You know, just, we're just trying to stabilize. How do we function? And then in, you know, in, in January and the start of this year, it's been about what do we want to be as a church? Setting our mission and vision. I think finally now we come to a point where we can begin to implement our vision. I think this fall is really a time we start, we, let's start to implement what we want to be. So I'm going to talk about vision, our vision statement this week and next week our mission statement, right? A vision statement is what you aspire to be. And a mission is what do you see yourself doing and how do you see that happening? So today we'll talk about this vision, you know, to be a, a vibrant community being changed by Jesus. Now, that we may listen to language, oh, I got that language, but it's actually kind of strange when I talk to people saying, well, what do you think Christianity is about? What do you think the gospel's about? Or, and people say, well, it's about, you know, being a good person, right? Doing to others as you have them do unto you, right? And people say, That's all, isn't that what all kind of religions are about? Doing good stuff? Is it? I mean, I, I, you see this bumper sticker? Uh, Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> <clears throat> you know. You know. It's really important, right? You know? He's coming, get doing stuff. Um, But I I like what Dallas Willard said. He said, the most important thing about you are not the things you achieve, but the person you become. The most important thing about you are not the things you achieve, but the person you become, right? Being changed. So what does that mean? What are we becoming? 
And that's what I want to talk about today. What, what is it we're trying to become? What is it we're being changed into? And secondly, how does that differ from doing good things? Is it bad to do good things? This is something very different. How does it differ? And lastly, how does that change really come about? So what does it mean to be changed? How does that differ from doing good things? And how do we get changed? So that's what we're going to talk about today. So in the passage uh, Bob read from um, 2 Corinthians 3, this particular passage says, this particular section of verse 18 says, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And that word for transformation there is where we get the word for metamorphosis. It says we are being undergoing metamorphosis into the very image of the Lord. That's what we're being changed into. With ever-increasing glory, glory to glory, bit by bit, glorious bit, we are actually looking like the Lord. That's what we're being changed into. And that word... um, and it says, with unveiled faces. You're like, what is that? What's the veil thing? And for that, you've got to back yourself up in the chapter a bit, because it's actually this whole argument that Paul's making about the nature of his ministry in 2 Corinthians. You know, he's saying, uh, and, it, and he makes this analogy with what's happened to us, with what happened with Moses in Exodus 34. If you remember, he said, um, in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Moses and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. They were afraid to come near him. When Moses Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, covering that glory. And then every time he would go in to be with the Lord, his face would show, reflect the glory of the Lord. He'd come out and he would veil his face for the people. And... What uh, Paul goes on to say is he builds his argument. He said, um, now if the ministry that brought death, and he kind of talks about the law being that which convicts you of sin. The law does a lot more than that. But in the midst of his argument here, he's talking about that. The law which brings death was engraved with letters on stone. It came with glory. So the Israelites could not even look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory, transitory though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? This is this classic kind of rabbinical argumentation method. How much more? He says, if this is true here, if the, if the law that came on stone was filled with glory, how much more glorious is this new covenant of the Spirit of God, right? Because what's the nature of the new covenant, right? The law is now written on your heart by the Spirit of God, as it says in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He goes, how much more glorious is that? If the glory there shined on his face, how much more glorious is this new covenant now by the Spirit of God? And then he kind of rakes what I would call like a, like a rabbinical riff. You know, kind of the way the rabbis would take stories and they riff on them a little bit. Um, and it, then he, he goes, you know, it's kind of like that veil over Moses. is kind of like what's over everyone's hearts when they hear about the Lord or the Bible. He says, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But anyone turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. And I think we know we, kind of what he's talking about here, isn't it? Like, you know, when you're, you can, I know for myself, you know, or even as Ross said, the first time she, you know, kind of looks at the Bible, before she kind of turns to the Lord, there's like a veil over it, right? You can't even see it. You don't really understand it. 
you know, you, um, you can come into worship, all this stuff happens, and other people are experiencing something, but you're not in some ways. It's just like, almost like a veil blocking you. And then he says, when you turn to the Lord, that veil comes off, and suddenly you see something. He said the Spirit of God actually comes into you, and you now can behold the glory of God and see it in a way you can't see it before. And he says that's what happens then with unveiled faces. We contemplate the Lord's glory and being transformed into his image. So when you turn to the Lord, there's a way in which you come into the presence of God like the way Moses came into the presence of God. And the way that the glory of the Lord reflected onto Moses. So we can actually come into the presence of God and have his glory reflected onto us. And we become changed and it changes us. And we get changed into that image of God. And the metamorphosis, in a sense, we talked about like a couple weeks ago how ultimately our body will be trans, you know, get new bodies when we come into the Lord's presence. But here it's like the, I like metamorphosis, it's like we're in a cocoon being changed on the inside. As we behold into who he is and being changed glory to glory. And this key idea, we're being changed into the image of God. Right? Remember, that's what we were made in initially, right? Everyone was made in the image of God, but in this broken world, all of us are this warped image. We're all kind of like it. We all kind of bear the image of God, but we're all kind of messed up. And in a sense, we're veiled from actually being with the Lord and in his presence. But when the veil comes off and we turn to him, suddenly we can see him and we can begin that transformation. And as we behold into it like a mirror and look into him, we are being changed bit by bit by bit. Because that's really what the gospel's about, right? That's the gospel story, right? That you can be forgiven, you can be changed, you can be renewed and changed. Now, how does that differ from this idea of doing good things? If you're transformed, don't you do good things? Is it so different? You know, one of the verses I find that people use a lot um, that they use usually wrongly as Christians, because I think Christians actually struggled under, to see this difference between do-gooding and transformation. You guys know this verse, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You've heard that one before, right? And what does this mean, right? This means you need to be more good, be more faithful, be kind, be gentle, have self-control. This is a list of commands, right? Don't you sit there and just go, man, I have got to be more gentle, That happens to me a lot, (laughs) whether or not I have this verse. Um, But is this a to-do list? It's not a to-do list. I mean, we warp this thing into a to-do list of good things. But you can't, you ever try to make a tree give fruit? You can't actually force it out. You have a healthy tree... And fruit happens from it. That's the idea here. That he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, right? So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The idea that when we're in step with the Spirit of God and and we are a healthy tree, fruit comes forth from us. We don't do good. Good comes out. This is a really important idea. Um, because actually, do-gooding is not that unusual of a thing. Everybody wants to do good. Really, there's nobody who in existence that doesn't have some sort of way in which they try to do good. And most of them try to define their own good. You've got you mobsters. Mobsters have their own code, 
which they think is a good way to do business and the proper way to do things. And if you break that code, they think it's wrong. They have their own sense of good. You know, somebody who's an environmentalist has set out what they think good things are and they try to do their life in light of that, do good things. You ever see people who try to eat, but it's not about eating healthy, it's about eating right, like good. You know that, you know that, uh, I don't even know how to use the language, the no GMO organic kale, which has been ethically sourced. Um, And it's not about eating, it's about doing the morally correct thing. By the way, I made a killer kale chip yesterday. It was to die for, I'm telling you, it was awesome. I've really perfected the recipe now, but I, and I like kale, but that's not the point. <clears throat> the point is, it's not a moral good that I ate the kale, but some, for some people it would be, and a moral failure when you don't eat it right. The good and bad thing is interesting. I don't know if anyone watched the uh, USA-Greece basketball game yesterday, but there was almost a fight at the end. And what the fight was, was uh, near the end when the game was kind of out of out of uh, out of reach, and a guy was, you know, on a breakaway to dunk the ball. Some guy came up there and tried to get, even though he couldn't have really blocked it, and pushed him, and he falls to the ground. And what the fight was about was not even that play. What the fight was about was that player didn't even go up and acknowledge and say he was sorry. And they took that as a huge affront to a number of the guys on the USA team. There was a code which was broken. Now, what's ironic is 20 years ago in NBA basketball, the moral code and the good thing to do would be never to say you're sorry. Those players now go, you never do that. In the midst of comedy, you don't say you're sorry to your competitors. And the moral code just kind of switches. But we're all trying to do the good and feeling we're failed, we're not doing the good. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so disorienting in our society currently. Because the do-gooding thing is switching like every year. You don't even know what it is to be good anymore. I'm trying to figure out, no, that's the good thing. I'm trying to do that good thing. It's just totally disorienting. And, and that's one reason you realize how, how kind of arbitrary do-gooding is. You know, however you can set the direction on it. Um, I, it's important to me because when I was in my whole, like, you know, Buddhist, Taoist phase and living, you know, wherever, I was obsessively do-gooding. You know, because, you know, Buddhist thought, it was like all your desires cause you suffering and you need to transcend that stuff. And so I was, like, obsessive about it, obsessive about being this kind of person. So I went and, uh, you know, I, I came to that hostel in Israel with all these Christians. They all thought they'd show me, you know, I'd see how wonderful God is by all their do-gooding. But the problem was, is I was a do, better do-gooder than they were. <laughs> so the atheist Buddhist guy, atheist Jewish Buddhist, is a better do-gooder. You don't understand, this is my life. You know, so every time we have a meal, I'm the first one to clean dishes. I'm the last one to eat. I'm the first to sit on the floor. I'll sleep out there. I'll be the last. I was so humble. I was so proud of how humble I was. <laughs> I was the humblest. You know, it's just, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's just, there's nothing, all I'm saying is there's nothing that, that unusual or that remarkable about do-gooding, and everybody should want to do it. You know, sometimes we look at other people while wow, they do such good, and we, we look at how amazing it is. Uh, Lewis makes an important distinction also, I think, which I appreciate. He says, um, we might think that, provided you did the right thing, he says this is one of the problems with do-gooding as well, uh, we might think that, provided you did the right thing, it did not matter how or why you did it. Whether you did it willingly or unwillingly, sulkily or cheerfully, through fear of public opinion for its, or for its own sake. But the truth is, is that right actions done for the wrong reason do not help to build the internal quality or character. We might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, 
whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. That last line, we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. He's interested in who you are, not the, not the do-gooding stuff. And this is a really important idea and how it connects to what we do. Uh, if you remember the, the verse we kind of looked over in Corinthians, it said, now the Lord is the spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is an important idea. Because you've turned to the Lord, the veils come off, the spirit of God's come into you, and now it says we're going to follow God, and so now life becomes this rigid set of rules, you're trying to do all this different stuff, and filled with guilt and shame and all these kind of things. He says, no, no, there's actually freedom. When you're made in the image of God, the actions, the do-gooding, should be something that comes out naturally. You know, I remember Martin Luther saying sin boldly, right? His idea that you're, you're, you're in some ways set free, not with fear or guilt or all those things, to actually live the way you are. And you begin, what you're really doing is you're beginning to put on lenses like God's lenses, see the world as God sees it, care about the things he cares about. As you're transformed into his image, you love what he loves. You know, you, you, um, the homeless person you go up and you care for, not because it's good to be compassionate to poor people, but because you feel this broken man, you know, you feel a, a broken woman, and you, you're, you feel compassionate for them. You are actually different. You know, I think we get, you may think of how hard it is. I mean, there's a lot of things you do naturally like that, isn't it? Like, you think about, you know, no one had to come with Brittany and Matt and say, you have a new baby, love that kid. They go, fine, all right, I'll do that. No, you know, like, oh, baby, you know. And, and babies fight it. They give you reason not to love them. You know, they, 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 they do their darndest sometimes. And then, yeah, you know, love me now, huh? But, uh, no, but it comes out naturally. <laughs> Sorry, I, I have three kids. I, I, I love them dearly. And, um, but this idea that you're changed from the inside and you begin to then see the, God, see the world as God sees it. Love that which he loves. Have his wisdom and care. And that's what happens. So are there actions you do? Yeah, but it's a very different thing. It's a life of freedom. So you might say, okay, well, how, how does this thing work? How do, I, you know, how do I become this transformed person, right? Well, the text you read says, what? Number one, you, when a man turns to the Lord, the veil's removed, right? We turn to him. You know, as, as I love it, Ross said, I prayed this thing, and it's, it almost sounds funny. I prayed this, and all this stuff started happening. You know, it, you can't. It's not something you box. But the Lord saw her and knew she was turning and asking, Lord, help, and God was pleased to answer, not playing hard to get. He's pleased. He wants to do that. And then it says, we behold, we can actually come into the presence of God. And just being in the presence of God is how the transformation takes place. And we live in that presence. And you're like, yeah, yeah, you look in the Bible, you're living it in prayer. You know, but essentially, you're living in his presence. You're coming into worship. You know, you're speaking in his presence when you're in your workplace as well. And all times as you are meditating him, thinking about him, learning about him, worshiping him, praising him, you are actually being transformed. And another key way in which that transformation happens, and this is going to sound like I'm going back on what I said about do-gooding, but it's really different, is that you are changed by the things you do. All right? Your actions 
change you. You know, you're, you're, uh, you're at work, and you know you were kind of too sharp with somebody, or you don't even know it, but they came to you. And you maybe you thought you were fine. They came to you and said that you, you really upset them. What do you feel at that moment, right? You start to feel the rationalization coming up. You start to say, no, that's not what really happened. You start to think, well, what's going to happen to me here? And all this stuff's happening to you, and you're having a choice, aren't you? How am I going to react to it? And you realize that how you react to that is going to form who you are. Something is happening in your soul at that moment. And are you humbly... I did that, and I shouldn't, you know, you ask forgiveness, you look humble, or you just go, I, you know, you, you answer in pride, and in that moment, you're beginning to be formed. And you have things like that every day, a million of them. We're confronted with decisions, and how, what are you going to do with your wealth? What are you going to do with this person who came to you? How are you going to parent? How are you going to, you're formed by all these things. You're sitting in a room, you know, uh, a bunch of people are all together to care for one another, and everyone, and you, you know, you're sitting on your phone, looking at your phone the whole time. And you're like, am I going to interact with these humans and live in the world, or am I going to do this? You're formed by that decision. In a life lived like this, you become something of that. So it's, it's constant. We're constantly being formed. We're constantly presented with things throughout our life, with decisions. You know, how, how am I going to respond to that? And it's not about being perfect, right? Actually, sometimes we're formed more not by our... Um, when we fail to be perfect, which, remember, in a broken world, we're going to do perpetually, but how do you respond to those failures? Do you seek forgiveness? Do you confess it? Do you seek to repent? Do you go to someone else and humble, you know, humble yourself? Because every one of those things begins to form you and shape you. He's concerned about the sort of person we are. You know, and we, we come into him and he wants to change us. And that's what our vision is, really. You ask yourself, what's your vision as a church? We want to be a vibrant community of people for whom this is happening. Who are people that are, each one of us are changing. Right? We all start in different places. We all have different areas where we need more changing than less changing. But are we in the process of being changed, of moving, of beholding him bit by bit, coming into his, into his image? being changed by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because, right, that's the key thing. You turn to the Lord, the veil comes off, the Spirit of God comes into you. And that's actually how you change. Try to do it on your own by do-gooding. You're going to fail perpetually. It's not about do-gooding. Boldly following God into the world. Because what's the purpose? We're sent into the world as his people. I love the, and I'll close on this last verse from that, chapter 3, it says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That God actually, now in the Holy Spirit, is taken, you know, has, has, is writing on your heart, and you become a letter written by God, sent into the world. Isn't that an amazing thought? That we are a community of people being changed into these letters from Christ into the world that God actually shows people that they can read you and read about him. That they can encounter you and encounter the glory of God and be changed by him. That's our vision. Are we there? No. But 
That is what we want to be. Letters of Christ sent into this world, empowered by him, show forth his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, let us be your letters. Lord, teach us how to behold you, to behold your glory, to allow you to do your work in our lives. Lord, Holy Holy Spirit, convict us in those moments of the life you have for us, those decisions, Lord, where we decide what is we're going to do with this. Oh, Lord, to live a life not of trying to do good because you're looking, but of living that life what we were meant to live. Transformed to look like you, to desire the things you desire, to love the things you love, to have the wisdom you want us to have. Oh, Lord, that you really might show your glory through us. We praise you and bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name.